Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Well, hello, everyone. Here we are again. And our in recent episode, I was saying, or we were saying that you were going to be going to speak Spain. And I have been and returned. And now you are back. And one of the things that I love when you are far, far away is how you can sometimes place a FaceTime call and let me see the amazing cliffs in Ireland or, you know, some really cool place that you're getting to visit in another country and and call me from there and share really your excitement about where you are. Mm -hmm. So I got one of these calls when you were in Spain. And I wonder if you would just tell our listeners what you saw i went and i've been to madrid a handful of times Mm -hmm. but i have never had the chance to travel up into the mountains outside of madrid and my host there rafael a little shout out to you rafael you're a faithful witness faithful witness (laughs) you are a faithful witness but i meant to say you're a faithful listener (laughs) to our podcast and he's been wanting to take me to this humongous cross up in the mountains outside of Madrid, and we finally got to go see it. And this this cross, which is on top of a mountain, and there's a basilica that is carved into the mountain. It's called the Basilica of the Holy Cross of the Valley of the Fallen. And it was erected in the, the early 1900s, maybe the 1930s, I'm not exactly sure. But it is, get this, it's five times taller than the statue of Jesus in Rio de Janeiro. Mm. And I don't understand why this is not like a globally known Mm. site and destination. Mm -hmm. Not only is this 500-foot cross amazing to behold, but even more, this basilica that is carved into the mountain under the cross. When I say carved into the mountain, I mean there's a doorway on the side of the mountain, and you go in to this basilica, and you are inside the mountain. And the the roof of the basilica is the the stone that's carved out from the mountain. So you're looking up at the inside mm. of the mountain. It's it's stunning. It should be a global destination. And one of the reasons it's not, as Raphael was explaining to me, was that uh, the, the, the government there is just opposed to it. And they've tried to shut it down on various occasions, not Mm. draw attention to it. But please, please, please look this place up. And if you're ever in Spain, check it out. It is, I mean, it should be the kind of place that people get on an airplane from around the world and Mm. fly to Madrid just to see this. It's, it's it's amazing. Wow. And unknown. Yeah. So check it out. Yeah. Look, you can get a, probably a virtual tour of it online somehow, but yeah, look it up. And if you're ever in Spain, go check it out. If I'm ever in Spain, it will probably be with you That's so we true. can go see it together. Let's do it. Okay. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that, Raphael? Next time I come to Madrid, I'm coming with Wendy. Is that what I just said? I'm not uh, sure. Well, I don't know if you just said it, but that's like <laughs> that's your wishful plan. thinking on my okay. part. Okay. Very good. Shall I start with a question then? Sure. Let's jump in. Okay. I have a question from a patron, an anonymous patron who asks, can a Catholic marry a Muslim? If so, how? And if not, why not? 
Can a Catholic marry a Muslim? I'm happy to answer that question. I just want to say, first of all, thank you to this anonymous patron for your ongoing support of the work we do at the Theology of the Body Institute. So grateful to you. Um, can a Catholic marry a Muslim? Yes, a Catholic can marry a Muslim. Uh, the Church is not going to be jumping up and down about that, uh, and you would have to get a dispensation to do so, to marry any non-baptized person. A dispensation is required, and the Church will most often grant that. It would be strange that the Church wouldn't grant that. Uh, but the reason you need to have a dispensation is because a, a baptized person marrying an unbaptized person means that this is not a sacrament. What makes marriage a sacrament is the fact that the two spouses are baptized. That's what constitutes their marriage as a sacramental mystery, meaning a real participation in the life and love of Jesus Christ. So marrying a non-baptized person, you can get a dispensation. Was there was there a second part to the question? Um, it was just, she said, if so, how, and if not, if so, why not? how, how. Yeah. Yeah. So one would get a dispensation, and then I believe the priest would would probably be willing to witness such a marriage. It would not be typically in the context of a mass. Uh, the dispensation might include um, the allowance for the Catholic to have some kind of ceremony elsewhere, but again, only by way of dispensation. And there's a very wise pastoral practice going on here in the church, not encouraging that a Catholic marry a non-baptized person, because, I mean, you and I, Wendy, can speak into this, how integral our faith is to our relationship with one another. I can't, I personally cannot imagine being married to someone who didn't share my faith. I don't know how, I don't know how it would work. Now, I do know of marriages. I'm thinking of my my grandparents in particular on my father's side, his parents. My grandfather was, he was baptized, but he was not a practicing Christian, whereas my grandmother was a, a baptized Catholic and a practicing Catholic. And I saw in their relationship the tensions that are common between believers and unbelievers. Now, um, such a marriage can be a witness to a fruitful dialogue that can take place, and that's beautiful. That's when that is possible, and when that happens, that can be a, a great witness in itself. But it's it's going to come with its share of significant difficulties, and the church in her wisdom wants to spare her children those difficulties. So she's not going to encourage such marriages, but she's not going to absolutely forbid them either. So that's the purpose of the the dispensation. And you get a dispensation at a, at a parish? Yes, you would your... go to your, your local pastor mm -hmm. and you would explain your situation and he would do all that's required canonically to, mm -hmm. to have that. Yeah, so that the you would be recognized in a in a valid marriage, but not a sacramental marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if that if you're married to a non-baptized person, and in the future that non-baptized person's person gets baptized, then that marriage becomes a sacrament via that person's baptism. There's no additional ceremony required. 
or any such thing, so long as the Catholic party went through the proper channels and got the dispensation to begin mm, with. Mm -hmm. There are these different sort of, they feel a little complicated rules around marriage. Um, and it's so interesting how the kind of principle of just kind of seeing adults as having a right, if they are not, you know, um, constrained by some circumstance, a right to marry that, um, the church is giving guidance, but not saying you cannot marry, right. even in situations that don't seem ideal by any stretch, but very different from like our Amish neighbors who would, you know, have to shun a family member right. who, you right. know, would Good not point, marry within their church. You know, we have a lot more just openness and hopefulness, I think. The scripture even talks about um, just the the unbaptized member of the couple being sanctified by the love of the baptized right, right. member and the, the good fruit that could come from that. Right, yeah. For those who don't know, we live in southeastern Pennsylvania, where the original Amish community uh, is still thriving, and our neighbors right across the street are Amish. We have Amish people all around here in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And there is this practice of of shunning if they marry outside the community. So, I think it's you're pointing out it's it's a it's a recognition these these rules that surround it, the church's law around this is safeguarding a treasure, mm -hmm. right? When you have a treasure, you want to protect it, right? It's not because there there's some arbitrary thing going on but no no the church is saying marriage is incredibly sacred and valuable and we need these laws around it to protect the value and dignity and and, and value did i already say value mm -hmm. i did well i'm saying again value value like <laughs> song of songs like uh holy of holies like value value that marriage is really valuable it's value valuable 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 it's sacred and it mm. needs to be protected. So not arbitrary restrictions, but at the same time, provisions, because we have hope that Christ can work in all circumstances. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think we've kind of answered that one. We, I hope we have anyway. Thank you so. again, dear anonymous patron, for your ongoing support of the work of the Institute. Our next question is from a listener named Cassie. Hello, Cassie. Cassie says, I have two questions. The first is in regards to chaste cohabitation and whether this is permissible or not. For context, my partner and I converted and came to faith last August in 2020. At the end of September, we made the decision to live chastely and hope to marry. I homeschool my children from a previous relationship and do not work. We plan to get married, but my partner was in a civil marriage and he's in the process of divorce. So for us to live separately would mean me stopping my kids' homeschool program and going back to work. My second question is whether or not this civil union of her to be husband right. still needs to be annulled. Let's answer that question first. Sure. The civil union uh, does need to be annulled because it's a civil union. I'm assuming this person is a Catholic. Does she mention that? Um, it sounds like maybe they became Catholic they last became, year. Oh, oh, that's right. That's right. So yes, so this, this Catholic who has a previous civil marriage does need to go through 
the process of a declaration of nullity. Um, I was going to say if he was already a Catholic when he was previously married civilly, then it's a very simple case of a lack of form, it's called. So a baptized Catholic is obligated to follow what's called the form of marriage in the Catholic Church, which means getting married within the Church according to the Church's understanding of marriage. If a baptized Catholic steps outside of that form and gets married by a justice of the peace civilly, that is not a valid marriage because of lack of form. So if he was, previous to the marriage, was already a baptized Catholic, it's a very simple lack of form case. However, things get complex here. If this was a baptized person who was not Catholic, or even a non-baptized person, because the Church recognizes the validity of civil marriages of non-Catholics, baptized or not baptized. And this, again, is a statement of the Church's faith in the natural reality of marriage and the seriousness of the marriage commitment. So a non-Catholic is not bound by the form of a Catholic marriage. So the Catholic Church would recognize the validity of a non-Catholic's marriage, even by a justice of the peace, even if that person is baptized. Are you tracking with me? <laughs> <laughs> it is a little complicated It question. is a little complicated. And part of the, the point maybe is to just ask, does he need to have the church look at his situation? Yes, yes and he does. you're saying yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I'm also trying to, to explain yeah. some of the, the, the theology here, which, which I find fascinating and might just be tedious to a bunch of our <laughs> listeners out there. And, and if this is tedious, forgive me. But I, I think this is a, is a point worth pressing into a little bit, because it, it does illuminate the great respect the church shows marriage even at the natural level, even for unbaptized people. Mm -hmm. So so if a, a non-Catholic gets married by the justice of the peace, and there's a subsequent divorce, and that person now wants to marry a Catholic, mm -hmm. that person's civil marriage needs to be looked at by the tribunal of the Catholic Church, because if it's valid, if it's a valid marriage, that person can't be marrying again because that person's already married. Mm -hmm. And so we mustn't look at, oh, do I have to get an annulment? Like, oh, it's just a matter of filling out some paperwork and then it'll be fine. No, no, it's, it's, it's more significant than that. It may be the case, and I, I pray for Cassie that, that everything goes smoothly here, but it does demonstrate the pastoral correctness of the church's concern about a Catholic getting ro romantically involved with somebody who's already married to somebody else. The, the, the proper order of things here, not that God's mercy can't still work, and I know many people who did not live the proper order of things, God's mercy can work through it all. God, there's no unforgivable sin except the sins we refuse to admit to be sins. Right? God can work through all of it. Let me say that first and foremost. Mm -hmm. But I just want to shine a light on the wise pastoral guidance of the church that we shouldn't be getting romantically involved with somebody who's already married to somebody else. Even if that person might be divorced, 
we shouldn't be romantically involved with someone unless there has been a demonstration that there was not a valid marriage to begin with. Because only then is that person really free to marry. Otherwise, you get romantically involved and you're like, well, we hope to get married. Uh, we sure do hope that annulment goes through. Well, then you're, you're put in a, in a situation where you may be tempted to leave the church if that annulment doesn't go through. And, and enter into a marriage that wouldn't be recognized by the church, which puts, puts that Catholic in a, in a very, very difficult situation. The church, in her guidance, wants to help us avoid these very thorny, difficult pastoral circumstances. All of that said, I want to affirm you, Cassie, in the journey you have been on. Clearly, you and this man you love, you are seekers you are looking for truth. You are looking for goodness. You, as you said yourself, you have um, taken a renewed interest in your faith. You said, Wendy, that she and this man she loves, uh, that he became Catholic as well. Am I am I remembering this correctly? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, in this, yes, I just want to commend you in this for your your desire to grow. It's so beautiful to see this work of grace in you and your commitment to. Re to remain chaste. And I, I was about to fall into that trap of saying chaste until married, but we don't want to say that because we're always to be chaste because chastity is not to be equated with abstinence, right? In your situation, Cassie, because you're not married to this man, chastity does demand abstinence. God willing, Cassie, if you and he do marry, you will live out your chastity, not through abstinence, but through the marital embrace. That becomes the expression of marital chastity. So, again, I just want to commend you. You are on the right track. Now let's get to the underlying question. Should you be still living with this man? It is not absolutely wrong that you are living with this man. Uh, what is absolutely wrong is to be engaged in a sexual relationship with someone to whom you're not married. So we're taking you at your word that you are living under the same roof, but you're not engaged in a sexually active relationship. It is complex. It is pastorally thorny, uh, also because children are involved. And there is the, the, the poor witness to your children. Now, if you are open with your children that you are not sexually active with this man, and you're living in separate rooms, well, then that can be an opportunity to witness beautifully to your children about your own commitment to chastity. But I don't know the age of your children. I don't know what's appropriate for them. Uh, if they're very young children and it's not appropriate to be talking about chastity in the sense that you're not engaged in a sexual relationship with this man, maybe they're too young to understand all that, I'm, I would be concerned that the children would get this impression, knowing that you're not married to this man, that, wow, mom is living with the man she's not married to. And then there is the question of scandal for the wider community. So there are a lot of issues here. It's a complex question. Let me try to be clear again. It is not objectively wrong to be living under the same roof. What is objectively wrong is to be engaged in a sexually active relationship with someone to whom you're not married. However, even though it is not objectively wrong that you're living under the same roof, it is problematic because of the impression that it causes in other people, including and maybe even especially the children involved in the situation, and then the wider community, etc., could be a cause for scandal. 
So even in her official teaching, the church recognizes that a couple who may not be married, let's take a couple who uh, one person has a previous marriage that has not been granted a declaration of nullity, and a Catholic has entered into a relationship with that person, maybe a civil marriage, and now maybe they have children together, the church says they may still live under the same roof in order to raise those children together, but they are called to abstinence, right? So it's not impossible for a man and a woman to live chastely under the same roof when they are not married. That's not impossible, but it is problematic. So, yeah, I hope I hope I I dotted my eyes and crossed my t's there, Wendy. What do, what do you think? Do you have anything to add to what I said? No, I think I think you answered that complicated question with what we know about it, you know, really thoroughly. And I'm sure that people listening, some people are saying, oh, this answers my question. And other people are saying, oh, that brings up a new question. So I'm just wondering, maybe good news about sex and marriage would be good to mention here because your book that answers a lot of questions about um morality related to marriage and sexuality might be something that people could turn to because they're now now we're thinking yes, more about that's right this, and you know? it does raise more questions sure. and you're right wendy that there is a chapter in good news about sex and marriage where i address questions of validity annulment divorce living together uh, raising children all of these complex issues you'll find very sound and good answers to yeah. those additional questions that we're sure are popping up in people's heads out there. And I love that Cassie asked us this question. I think, um, you know, as you pointed out, what a journey she and her partner are on. Yeah. Um, and I pray that as you have experienced, it's like a beautiful gift when you come to the point of conversion, you know, like what a freeing moment and what a grace is poured out. And sometimes as we get further along in the journey, and and maybe the journey has more difficulties that we didn't imagine at the time, we can start to get doubts and confusion and different voices and, uh, you know, talking to people who maybe don't understand the church's teaching, yes. what or why. So thank you so much for asking your question to us and just allowing us to shine some light. I know the Holy Spirit is so active in your life just by what you've shared already. You know, let ask the Holy Spirit to continue to shine light on this question. I think in your heart, one your main question might be, should my children and I live separately? And what would that mean for us? And I just encourage you to lay that before the Lord in your prayer at Mass as you receive the Eucharist, which is an incredible gift and source of grace for your journey, to give Him that question and be open that if He wants to call you to live separately with your children um, in order to just do deeper work in your heart and in His heart, that he would show the way and um, just give you a peace about that decision. Wendy, I love when you proclaim the good news. I really love it. Thanks, Milo. I really do. It, it gets me excited and it <laughs> makes me fall in love with you even more. And I want to say one more thing to you, Cassie, that whatever the Lord might be asking of you here, and, and I could imagine two scenarios. I could imagine a scenario where 
staying in the same home, but being a bold witness to all concerned parties that you are living chastely, that could be a beautiful, powerful witness to people. I could imagine that scenario. I could imagine the scenario that the right thing to do, maybe for the sake of your children, um, maybe because you feel the Lord calling you in that direction, would be to move out. I could imagine that scenario as well. Whatever the Lord might be asking of you, He will never ask something of you and not give you the grace to see it through. He never does that. As St. Augustine says, Lord, give me the grace to do it and ask of me whatever you want. Mm. Uh, Let that be all of our prayers for all the difficult circumstances we find ourselves in. Lord, give me the grace to fulfill what you ask and ask what you will. Mm. Amen. Next question is from a listener named Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Thank you, Christopher and Wendy, for sharing this good news so beautifully with all of us. I wonder if you could share some of your reflections on the theology of the aging body. Ooh, I like this one. I work as a primary care provider in the medical field and spend a lot of my time with the elderly, many of whom are struggling with the aging process and the pain and suffering that often accompanies old age. Dementia is particularly difficult on the person and loved ones, as the person seems to become almost a shell of their former self Mm. Mm. in some way. I would appreciate any reflections on what light the TOB can shine on this issue. Daniel, thank you for this question, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the love that you show these people in their aging bodies. This is a a tremendous witness, a tremendous gift. Uh, When we love as Christ loves, that has a ripple effect on the whole body of Christ. And I'm just feeling, Daniel, the love that you have for these people in your question. I can feel it. And I'm feeling the ripple effects out into the body of Christ of your concern for these people and your, your, I I would just call it your deep charity, your deep love for them. now, you're dealing with the elderly, and I would not yet consider myself elderly. No. I'm middle-aged. I'm in my early 50s. Uh, but I am getting older, and I, I have been reflecting as I age and as I realize I can't do as nearly as many push-ups as I used to do, and I, I find myself short of breath at times. I get out of bed, and my bones are achy, and I'm getting gray hair and I'm getting age spots all over my face and uh, wrinkles and all that. And seeing you age as well, Wendy, uh, I think, you know, we have to both recognize we're getting old-er. Old-er. I mean, everybody's getting older, right? There's nobody. Think about that. That just kind of dawned on me. There's nobody in the whole world who's not getting older. (laughs) You have profound things to say sometimes. (laughs) Profound thoughts with Christopher West. Maybe we should change the title of this podcast. Um, Everybody's getting older. But you and I, in that middle-aged part of life, man, we are not in our 20s. We are not in our 30s anymore. And we feel it. And so this has caused in me a a deep and sustained reflection on aging. Uh, I I don't like it. I'm not a fan um, from one perspective. And the reason I'm not a fan is because it's a reminder of death. And I'm not a fan of death. I don't like death. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but reflecting on these questions, you know, one of the deep aches of my heart is knowing that 
you, my my beloved, my wife, you're going to die. Mm. And unless we die at the same time, either you're going to see me die or I'm going to see you die. Mm. And that that's gut-wrenching. I don't like it. I am not a fan of death. Mm-mm. But we have hope. And our hope is that we do not return to nothing. And our hope is not only that our soul lives on forever. Our hope is that our entire humanity, body and soul, lives on forever. Even though the body returns to dust, we believe, we say it in the final line of the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of our bodies and life everlasting. Amen. So what does theology of the body have to say about the elderly and those who are, are facing that more rapid decline, who where death is just right around the corner, it proclaims the hope of the resurrection of the body. And I've been working through this, my own issues with aging, my own issues with death, my own uh, concern about dying, my my the ache in my heart about you dying someday, Wendy. I've been working through this with my spiritual director, and he told me the saying of this nun. Um, he told me her name, but I don't remember. She's, I don't think she's an author. I think it's just a nun that he had encountered. And she was elderly, and she embraced it with such grace. And she said, diminishment is the humble path to glory. And that, that is something that's been rumbling around in my heart and my mind ever since Father Jim shared that with me some years ago. Diminishment is the humble path to glory. This is what the way of the cross teaches us. We're all on a conveyor belt, and it's headed to death, and we're all going to fall off that conveyor belt and into the pit of death. But our faith promises the hope of resurrection. This is our hope. This is our glory. This is where it all goes. I I tell the story in my book, uh, which one is it? Love is Patient, But I'm Not. I, I tell the story of being in our parish church some years ago, and a young, attractive woman came into the church with, I assumed it was her grandmother. She was very elderly. And, you know, our, our eye is drawn just to the attractiveness of youth. Mm-hmm. That's where our eye goes. I, I, I don't like, on some level, I don't like to look at people who are, like, on death's door. It's disconcerting. I don't like it. Uh, It reminds me of my own death, and I don't like that. I'd rather look back at youth. But as I caught myself, like, looking at the youth and being attracted to the youth and not being attracted to this woman who's diminishing in her physical beauty, in her physical stature, and is closer to, certainly in the normal course of events, would be closer to death's door than her granddaughter, I heard this little voice, and I thought it really was the Holy Spirit. And that voice said, which one of these women is closer to glory? Which one of these women is closer to full beauty? Uh, And it it hit me kind of like a ton of bricks. Like when we look backwards to, to youth to reclaim a sense of beauty, we're looking in the wrong direction. If the resurrection is real, then full speed ahead, full speed ahead. 
because the glory is in that direction. And the diminishment, be it frailty, physical frailty, be it uh, mental diminishment or dementia, diminishment can become and, and is, as we walk with Christ in, in, and off, in and through all things, diminishment becomes the humble path to glory. I feel like what you're saying is so important. And I think that one of the things that um, facing and caring for either family members or in Daniel's case, you know, patients who are so old, one of the things that calls to our minds is what the real gospel is and what the world has been secretly telling us through all kinds of messaging, the quote gospel is, where there's a gospel of being at peak physical right. form right. or peak mental ability or peak performance in whatever area is right. your area of performance. Peak, peak, peak. And these people are not, yes. they don't appear to be anyway at their peak and therefore they appear almost like the the lost, yes. you know, if you have like or those, less who human. Are, those who are saved and those who aren't or something. Right. Almost as if we want to imagine a world where there's only arriving at your peak and never any other part of the journey right. after that. And yet that's not the real gospel. That's right. And that's Preach what it, you've been talking about Preach here. it. You're preaching it again and it excites me. Woo! But when you're talking about those two women in church, yes, for example, yes. the Lord is saying to you, what's the gospel? That's right. What's That's the exactly news? what he's saying, Wendy. And, that is exactly what he's saying. And that is, we need these older people mm. to help us to get our ideas straight yeah. about what is the truth of the human person? What is our value and dignity and what is it based on? And is it based on our being at peak beauty or performance and, you know, physically or mentally? So I think the value of the human person is so beautifully proclaimed by an aging, very old body, especially if that body is, as a person, is loved. And, mm. and it's a failure of so many aspects of our society not to truly love. And so I think one of the things that when we see the suffering there is physical suffering for sure, but sometimes there's a deep suffering of being not valued. Yes, yes. Um, that, you know, I often thought when John Paul II got very old and so weak, and yet he would continue to speak to yes, the world and yes. everybody would listen. Yes. And I think how many people like him are there in the world that people just leave in a corner and don't have an interest in what they have to say, what they have to share. Don't look for the treasures that are still in that person. So I think that's such a, a gift of the old person. And the very fact that I'm using the word gift is also something to remember that our bodies in theology of the body, we understand they show that we're created to be a gift. Yes, yes. And so for older people to be allowed to experience how they can be a gift, whether their smile is a gift to someone else, whether they reach out a hand and touch someone else that they're concerned about, they are physically making a gift of themselves. And if that gift is received, that is the beautiful creation for communion that is still shining through that person. And I also think that um, in some ways, when we talk about like dementia and loss of memory, some memories 
remain in the body mm. in a way that maybe they aren't accessible to the conscious right. mind. And so I think that's another treasure that we can Beautiful. find in Beautiful. relationship with older people. You know, if that person, you know, always appreciated it, if you just rubbed her back or his back, that's going to continue. Beautiful. You Wendy. know, regardless of whether they can tell you what they had for breakfast that morning right. doesn't matter there there's a possibility of connecting with memories through the body that's such a profound reality of who the person really is that remains even in this time of loss beautiful 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 i i have a an observation about something you said and then it, it's tapping two stories that i, I want to mm -hmm. tell uh, one that thing about physical peak you know, mm -hmm. a peak beauty or peak performance, right. peak, peak athletic ability. Yeah. And anything past that, you're just going downhill yeah. and you're no longer valued. Well, you know, every lie is the twisting of a truth here. And the, the enemy loves to take a truth and twist it all up. Uh, we are headed towards a peak. And the peak we're headed towards is the resurrection of the body. Mm. Uh, we could call that physical peak of this life, whether it's your peak athletic ability or your peak mental ability or your peak physical beauty, whatever you might consider your peak, we could call that a false summit. You know, in mountain climbing, you have to always be aware of those false summits where you think you're at the top, but then you realize, no, no, this is not the top of the mountain. The top of the mountain is way over there. And physical peaks in this life of the athlete or what have you those are false summits. We, we are thinking that this is the destiny of life. The destiny of life is not any physical peak you can get to in this life. The summit, the real peak, is the resurrection of the body. And the path to get to the glorified body is the humiliated body, hummus, the return to the earth. What a mystery mm. that the way to glory is to return to dust. That demonstrates that the glory we really desire is nothing that we can accomplish, right? And that's another lie out there. Work out hard, exercise hard, and you can accomplish this peak. No, mm. no, no. The peak we really desire is nothing we can accomplish. We return to dust. Every peak athlete, every beautiful so-called supermodel is, is going to return to dust. That's just a fact. But what we hope in is that God loves that dust. We are not just dust destined for death. We are dust destined for divinization. This is our faith. And then that, so I wanted to make that point. Yeah. Then I wanted to tell two quick stories. And one you reminded me of because you were talking about John Paul II and his willingness to, to put himself on display even in the final years, months, and days of his life when he was clearly diminishing. Mm -hmm. And Parkinson's disease was taking over his body. He would even drool sometimes at, at the altar when he was saying Mass, but he kept going, he kept going. That was one of the greatest witnesses to the world. And Cardinal Jeevish, who was the secretary, private secretary to John Paul II for almost 40 years, when he was asked, what's the highlight in all of your memories mm. of being at John Paul's side, do you have a highlight? And his response, think about that, at his side for nearly 40 years. And the highlight he chose 
was what he described as John Paul II's final pilgrimage towards death. Mm. He said he embraced it wholeheartedly with full faith and hope in the resurrection. What a witness that is, right? And then one final story. Wendy, you can speak with such passion and compassion about aging and dying because you have such a genuine love for people in their weakness, in their infirmity. And I just want to tell our listeners a story that I think I also wrote about this in my book, Love is Patient, But I'm Not, of when you and I were, were very early in our relationship, we were just starting a dating relationship, and you took me to visit your great-grandmother, mm-hmm. Nana, yeah. Nana yeah. who was 105, mm-hmm. 105 years old. This was like uh, one of our earliest dates. <laughs> And you wanted me on one of our earliest dates to meet your great grandmother, to meet your Nana. Mm -hmm. And we walked into this nursing home and I hadn't been in a nursing home since the seventies when my great grandmother died. Right. And it it wasn't initially a pleasant experience for me. You know, you're smelling bedpans and Mm -hmm. just the, the smell of a nursing home is not pleasant. And I felt a little uneasy and, then I saw you just greeting people in the hallway, people you had see, maybe seen before or recognized, and you'd bend down and say hello. And I was like, oh my gosh, Wendy's totally at ease here, and I'm all nervous. And then we went in, and, and you told me in advance that your 105-year-old great-grandmother uh, couldn't hear very well, and she couldn't see, and she would be uncomfortable if, if uh, you know, meeting a stranger, and that but it would be okay for me just to sit there and watch you tend to her. And I sat there for, I don't know, a half an hour, and I watched you love your Nana. Mm. And it changed my life. Wow. Your love for her changed my life. Because I knew then I wanted to marry you. I knew then I needed a woman who knew how to love the way you know how to love in my life. And I was... Bold, bold over by your love. And I'm so grateful to you for that. Uh, and I, 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 I hope that through this question that's been asked by Daniel, um, through our response, and through Daniel's witness and his love for these people, that there's something here we can all take away. Who are the old people in our own lives? Grandparents, parents, great-grandparents, that maybe just a a neighbor down the street um, who needs to be loved on. Mm -hmm. Can we go show these people their value, their dignity, their worth? And can we even speak to them? Maybe they need, maybe they need to hear that their life is valuable and not just hear it, but experience it. Everyone's life is incredibly valuable. Everyone's life is an unrepeatable, indispensable, irreplaceable gift of life and love. May we all become what we are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they're not licensed counselors. 
If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.